You're listening to The DAP Project. I'm Rhonda Elizabeth. And I am Aaron Harvey. The DAP Project is our happy place, our creative space, a podcast that explores politics and culture through DAP, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. That's what we do. I also want to shout out our listeners for checking for this podcast. Folks have been subscribing to the website and newsletter, tapping in on our IG page, and getting involved with TDPB Reading for our monthly book talks. The DAP Project sincerely appreciates you. Keep rocking with us. So, Rhonda Elizabeth, what's going on in the news? In the year that anti-Asian violence has garnered attention by the mainstream media, so has a false characterization about Black and Asian solidarity been revived. I'd like to highlight an article by scholars Jennifer Lee and Tiffany Wang of Columbia University, which is my alma mater, that deconstructs this perception of conflict between Black and Asian people. This is important for us to understand. The title of the article is Why the Trope of Black-Asian Conflict in the Face of Anti-Asian Violence Dismisses Solidarity, published by Brookings on March 11th. This was one week before the massacre in Atlanta that killed seven Asian American people on March 16th. Three insights that I found interesting from this article. The first is that following the 1992 uprisings against the beating of Rodney King, Black and Asian community leaders engaged in mutual healing and rebuilding. I never knew that, and I'm old enough to have remembered, but that's not something that was featured in the mainstream news. Second insight is that according to a new Pew Research Center survey, quote, about four in 10 Black and Asian adults say people have acted as if they were uncomfortable around them because of their race or ethnicity since the beginning of the outbreak, meaning the outbreak of COVID, and similar shares say they worry that other people might be suspicious of them if they wear a mask when out in public. This is interesting to me because it highlights that both Black and Asian people are continuing to experience discrimination and this focused on COVID. And then finally, Representative Grace Ming, a Democrat of New York and Senator Maisie Hirono, a Democrat of Hawaii are collaborating to introduce a new hate crime legislation to address a rise in hate incidents directed at Asian Americans. This bill would create a new position at the DOJ, the Department of Justice, to facilitate the review of hate crimes and provide oversight of hate crimes related to COVID-19. Fomenting division between oppressed groups is a well-worn and well-known tactic of white supremacy. We must know this, we do know this. Winning looks like building multiracial coalitions to challenge the structures that threaten all of us. I encourage you to read this article as well as listen to a recent episode of Throughline, which profiles social justice activist, Yuri Koshiyama. That's my news. This week, we have the distinct pleasure of talking with our friend and brother, David Johns, the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. This was both a delight and an entire lesson 
You'll hear David's deep scholarship on Black culture, social justice, and queer studies, and a cadence that will have you thinking you are sitting with the late James Baldwin. Listen for a nuanced discussion about teaching children gendered behavior, why that's problematic, using affirming language to describe whom one loves and how one identifies, and how NBJC is holding the PGA to their pledge to be a part of the solution in Black America's fight for fair access and to not be on the side looking silly being part of the problem. Strategery and accountability, we love it. Then we talked about the Lil Nas X video, Call Me By Your Name, because, because we had a ball. This conversation will really bless your life. And I happen to think that it is one of the most important conversations that the DAP project will do because each of us can play a part in creating the just and safe world that everyone who walks this earth deserves. And that namely includes transgender people. Thank you so much, David, for being on the podcast this week. And let's hear what we talked about. Yolanda Celia Ruiz would ask the question of uh, where did I catch sense uh, in terms of introductions? Uh, and I am the grandson of a Baptist preacher. I'm from Austin, Texas, where both my mother and father are from. Uh, I am the eldest of two. I have a younger sister who is one of, if not the strongest black woman I've ever met. Uh, she is mother to three beautiful kids. Jordan is graduating high school in two months um, and is super excited about her prom. Um, and I have twin nephews, Jack, Jackson Jet. Um, and I get to spend my time, talent, and treasure uh, treasures quarterbacking the team at the National Black Justice Coalition, which is a civil rights organization. Uh, focused on federal public policy at the intersections of racial equity and LGBTQIA plus equality. Um, I come back to those uh, terms to not assume everybody knows what they mean um, throughout the course of the conversation. Um, and at the core, I am a teacher, a speaker, and a writer. What is your earliest memory of DAP? My earliest memory of DAP is probably associated with the Inglewood Police Department, um, a rite of passage program that my mother enrolled me in. Uh, and I'm struggling because like many um, sons of black women uh, who love their sons and raise their daughters, um, I was over-programmed. And so I'm trying to recall whether it was the Sheriff's Explorer Academy that I graduated from, which would have meant that it was the Inglewood Police Department that um, conducted a uh, what was called self uh, law enforcement, like manhood um, rites of passage program. And a part of this program was a handshake, and DAP was at the core of the handshake. And the entire experience was. Uh, more Afrocentric than I remember it being connected to the institution of policing. Um, and it's interesting that you asked this question because my uh, god brother, who looks a lot like you, Aaron, um, mm -hmm. so when I see you on Instagram, I'm like, wait, this, this, look, this looks like my, my, my god brother Cliff. <laughs> um, but he sent me a picture of myself with my nana, my great grandmother. Um, and she was with me at my graduation 
um, and a little kente cloth, uh, being proud of being the way in which I remember her uh, being proud and working really hard so that she could be proud. Um, but that's a really long way of saying that that's my first memory of and with that. In addition to the DAP that you learned, did anything else in particular stand out for you in that Rites of Passage program? What I remember from the program, and I will never forget this, is that a man is one who was able to provide for his family mentally, financially, spiritually, emotionally. And there's another one because it was five. And in, in, an, in another way. And so it, it really was the first time that I remember being consciously invited to interrogate male identity. Mm-hmm. And I remember the program being exceptionally Afrocentric. Um, and so for me, it was an interrogation of early interrogation of Black male identity, of Black masculine identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and one connected to men who showed up in, in my community of Inglewood, California, sometimes wearing a badge, but always leading with a love for and a commitment to Black folk. Uh, the thing that is the thread through all of the jobs that I've had and uh, communities that have conspired for my success. So our families have a huge influence on the ways that we form our understanding of gender. Just today, I had a conversation with a family member who had basically just told their son, don't do push-ups like a girl. So Mm -hmm. their son, I was telling their son, if you get down on your knees, it'll be easier for you to do a correct push-up. And then as you get stronger, you can stretch your legs out. And this family member said, no, that's the way that girls do it. And so right. we then had a conversation about that language being sexist. And I might've said that that was toxic masculinity. So what are healthier ways that you think families should teach their children about gender and behaviors that are associated with gender? Yeah, um, I appreciate the question and I'm looking for a resolution from the American Psychological Association that I believe is probably in a um, file. I'm going to find it while we're talking. Please give Um, it to me so I can bop this person upside the head. I don't want you to do that. So I don't want you to do that, at least not now. Uh, And I was going to say that the first thing I want to honor is that these conversations are incredibly challenging to have, in part because most of us don't possess the literal language to be able to have conversations about how flawed these constructs are. Um, And so the American Psychological Association, APA, has a a gender diversity resolution that they issued in February 2021. And I'm going to drop the link in our chat so that you all have it and can share it with your audience. And I want to read a section from the first page, which is that, and I quote, the fields of psychiatry and psychology have a long history of pathologizing individuals and those who question their gender identity. Then they offer references to studies which affirm this over time. This history is informed by and parallels the larger Western and United States-based medical model narratives that one, define gender as binary and conflated with physical markers. This flawed idea that boys who possess penises 
are stronger and have disproportionate access to strength in ways that women and girls can never have access to. Two, define masculinity and characteristics historically attributed to men and boys as superior to femininity and characteristics historically attributed to women and girls. Again, I, I laugh at the idea that we don't wanna teach boys to do push-ups like girls when girls possess strength that is not only admirable, but would break the average boy. Our, exactly. our grown man for that fact, right? I think about, and I was uh, um, watching a conversation that my boy George 2.0 was producing around diaper dads and talking about uh, fertility and, and, and the process of a woman uh, who had the ability. And when I say woman, I wanna be clear that I mean cis and trans. Uh, but for women that have the ability, cause not all women have the ability, right? Again, a way for us to complicate these assumptions we make about gender and, se and sex but for women who have the ability to produce children. That requires a strength that again, would break the average male. I say this as somebody who's had an epidural and was no part of any of that process. <laughs> and so the idea that we suggest that the strength that women have is inferior to the strength that men possess is by design. It's a social construct. To land this plane, the, th the third thing is that these Western medical US models, what black feminists refer to as a matrix of domination, the science systems and symbols that allow white supremacy, hetero privilege, cis privilege to be omnipresent and invisible at the same time, also create systems that confer privilege to cisgender people and label cisgender identities and expressions as normative. So the flaw in all of this is that the way that privilege works is the the processes that we all go through of making sense of who we are and the worlds that we uh, occupy and have it move through, for those for whom their identities are assumed to be normal or traditional or expected, the work that they do is not public. It, it, it's, it, it is um, hidden in the books and TV shows and, and, and movies that offer mirrors and windows for people to be able to feel like what they're going through is what everybody's going through and how they identify is how everybody identifies. And so that's what you should be doing. And the consequence of that is that people for whom their experiences are not a part of the pejorative, expected, what, what again is in this document, this Western form ways of thinking is thought of as deviant. And for folks that don't know what to do with difference, when it becomes deviant, the response is to want to hate it, to want to suppress it, to want to hide it, to want to eschew it. And so they're really making clear that, that, that this is by design. And then the last thing that they say is that all of this stuff informs a system of discrimination against transgender and gender non-binary individuals. And the saddest thing for me is that like there are moments where all of the problems with these social constructs are made clear, like the moment where somebody is saying something to a young person that they otherwise shouldn't say if they're thoughtful about these things. But every single day, these trappings show up.
So I'm thinking about the rites of passage ceremony in Los Angeles where you learn the dap and the instance where the young boy is doing a push-up and told that if your knees are on the ground, it makes it a girl push-up. How are these moments in some way related to each other? When I think about um, the grip that we that I have as a member of the greatest fraternity known to man, Cal Fraternity Incorporated, um, there is a there is a standard way that we grip and greet each other. There are standard ways in which brothers in different communities engage in, in trading dap. And so while there's like, there's something fundamental about it that makes it dap in the same way that there's something, something fundamental about um, a porch sole or good collard greens, right? There's also room for, I think by necessity, diversity in the flavor, the, the, the specific taste, the way that it feels, the way that it smells. And so the relationship between the two for me is that I think for those that are not mindful of the fact that as long as there have been Black people, Black men, that there's been incredible diversity. While there are things that there are ties that bind it, that there are diverse ways in which people engage with it and come to know it and make meaning as a result of it. And too often when the stories are told about it, which are often not for and about for or by us, which is why I appreciate this platform and the, the space to archive and, and, and engage in these discussions, I think the nuances around the diversity is missed. And so for me, there is beauty as an athlete in appreciating that my body allows for different ways of experiencing ranges of movement. And my ability to use my knees while doing a push-up to allow my body different leverage points, it's something that gives me strength that I can't find if I'm planked. And that's not about being a boy or a girl or being a side pink or blue or whatever other superficial conflations we make because we're used to the shorthand. And so whether or not it's, whether it is DAP or push-ups or sports, my request, my beseechment is for us to make room uh, without the, the, the visceral response to like wanna narrow and exclude and, and, and draw clearly defined boundaries around what is and isn't or should and should not be. We note that language is fundamental in conveying love, equity, respect across difference. And the MBJC has produced a multitude of toolkits to guide people in amending the words that they use. How have those toolkits been received and what progress have you seen as a result of people literally having a guide to help them to change their thoughts and change their words. Yeah, I'm incredibly biased. So I'll just make that clear at the outset. And there's like no non-self-aggrandizing way for me to answer this question. Um, but I'll share two stories connected to resources that we've offered up in this way. Um, one is that 
we do an incredible amount of work around HIV, AIDS, stigma reduction with the goal of increasing the rate at which Black folks and FOLKS um, or X um, test for HIV and other sexually transmitted infections, access preventative medicine, things like PrEP and PEP. I literally take a pill, it's usually on my desk, I don't know where it is now, but I take a pill every day, much like some people take birth control to reduce the likelihood that I, um, as a Black, same gender loving man, will become HIV positive, um, to be connected to care in ways that allow people who are living with HIV to thrive with it. In part because since the HIV epidemic was introduced in the late 80s, Black people have disproportionately died. And so much of what pains me now is that there's still so many of us dying as a result of the stigma, not as a result of the virus. Like we are dying because there's so much shame associated with the idea that one has HIV, that people aren't getting tested, which doesn't allow them to know that they're positive and then have their viral load suppressed and otherwise live a happy and healthy life with this virus that still in our community feels like a death sentence. And one of the learnings I had was that early on in my appointment, so this was 2017, I had uh, left my role serving uh, one of the smartest people I've met in my life, Michelle Yvonne Robinson Obama. Um, her husband, Barack Hussein Obama, appointed me to lead the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans. Um, and I transitioned uh, one into a PhD program at Columbia um, where I'm finishing a degree in sociology studying how racism and homophobia and transphobia and all these things work in public schools um, and accepted this job with NBJC. And the first thing we did was produce a summit on black lives to have this conversation about HIV in our community. And the goal for me was to acknowledge and celebrate that there are so many practitioners and people that do testing and prevention and intervention work in our community um, the Black AIDS Institute, um, a, a chief among them. But there are also so many civil rights, legacy civil rights organizations, Black Greek organizations, um, organizations like the National Urban League, the NAACP, um, uh, National Action Network, that love Black folks and myths that, if you love us, then you got to lean into this thing, which is continuing to kill us disproportionately. And there's a moment in the summit where Angela Rye, uh, a dear friend, leader in this space was talking about her introduction to HIV, which is through her cousin, a wonderful woman named Bridget who told her story on, on Oprah's network um, after her husband who um, had an affair, um, cheated, I think same thing, double uh, negative to make it clear. Um, um, uh, uh, it, uh, she tested positive as a result of his actions. And Angela in telling this story said, I forget the sentence, but she used the term full-blown AIDS. And there was a thoughtful uh, uh, advocate, Carmarian, who stood up and said, with all of the love and grace that Black women can muster, please don't use that term. And then she went on to say why, that the technical term is stage three HIV, full-blown AIDS is a term that's been used by the media to conjure up this image of like HIV being this thing that can bubble up onto people in some physical way and like, and as someone living with HIV, she was able to deliver this message in a way that has lived with me since. 
And, and we literally acknowledge that often what happens is that people will have the opportunity to speak in the way that Angela did and then the exchange doesn't happen. There isn't an inviting in to say, sis, put that word down and let me offer up something else for you to consider and here's why. And so we developed a resource, a Words Matter Toolkit um, focused on HIV to not only tell that story, but to offer up other language that reduces the stigma and makes it more palatable for people to invite other people in. Related to that, um, I don't like the term coming out. I don't use it um, for lots of reasons. Chief among them is that white people get to come out. Hollywood tells the story of white folks who come out after they have a difficult conversation with their family. At some point, the family comes around. At some point, they move to a neighborhood like Hollywood, California, or Chelsea, New York, or Boystown, Chicago. They join the Stonewall Flag, Foot Flag Football Association, the Gay Drinking League, the Gay Everything. They now get power from being both white and gay. The data shows that most Black LGBTQIA people live with other Black people. We are disproportionately concentrated in Southern states, in states where it's still legal to discriminate against us based on actual or perceived sexual identity, gender orientation, or expression. Fun fact, before June of 2020, in my parents' home state of Austin, Texas, I could have been fired for having a picture of my best friend on my desk at work and somebody assuming that that was my gay lover. Yeah. Right? This yeah. is why it's so important for us to pass the Equality Act now, because those federal protections outside of employment, which is connected to the Bostick decision, don't actually exist. I'm saying all of this because Coming out as a construct, which is celebrated one day a year, which also says like, keep that, keep that stuff to yourself every other day, except this one day where we gonna like fold our arms and all the straight people are gonna wait for you to tell us your sad story about when you realized you were weird because nobody else has to come out. Mm -hmm. And often it suggests that there's this like singular moment where like you do this thing and then you get to live your life like everybody else does. And it's not true, right? Like every single day I am invited slash forced to make decisions about inviting people in. And so we have another toolkit, another resource, a construct we offer is inviting in. And for me, inviting in is about shifting power because the reality is I don't owe anybody shit. I don't owe anybody an explanation about who I love, how I love. And if you care about anything, your question should be, am I loved? But details shouldn't really matter to you unless you're trying to be in the space of co-constructed love with me. Completely different conversation, but that's often not where people are. And each of us have things about us that because of our socialization, all of the things that you two mentioned, feel difficult to share or weighty to share. If we each shift to not expecting people to disclose things that we don't deserve, but to demonstrating competence and compassion and curiosity, then a part of the vulnerability is that we can invite each other into things, whether that's my family's history with mental health or, or the, the trauma that uh, runs in my family through Black men who have all served formerly in the military, or 
having children from a previous relationship or any of the other things that become these big monsters that can literally affect somebody's health and well-being or otherwise be the difference between life and death. And what I know is that I've been in public spaces and in private venues where people have said to me, thank you for the language to be able to have a conversation where I could invite in my mother or thank you for helping me even shift the thinking around. I don't owe anybody anything, especially when there's no reciprocity with regard to what people feel entitled to. And I have watched people be tested for HIV and be connected to care. And, and, and it is to be clear, um, nowhere near the rate or pace at which I, as somebody who cares about Black people and Black communities and our freedom, um, see change happening. Um, and it is always enough to continue to do the work. Did you have any anxieties about having those inviting in conversations with your cisgender male friends? I very much had anxieties around my, some of the core relationships I have with black men changing. Um, and I think three things happened over the course of my maturation as an adult. One, all of us realized that we are uh, fallible, flawed humans. Um, and, and my ability to not judge somebody for um, the way that they choose to live this human experience has also provided grace for them to withhold whatever judgment they might have about my choices. That's one. Um, the second thing is most of my friends, uh, the guardian angels uh, who I'm clear that God has placed in my life to help walk with me, reason, season, or lifetime, has always have always been most concerned about me and whether or not I am loved. And so the response most often to um, having uh, inviting in conversations were often around either uh, checking to see if there was something that they didn't do to have warranted being invited in earlier, right? Uh, which is its, its own vexing thing, right? When you are at a place where you feel like um, someone you love is withholding information from you that you are not entitled to, but would like to know and could be in position to care for them in a more meaningful way, it can be hard to sort of figure out the timing of when to jump in that double death rope. And so that was a part of it. And very much related to that, I think the equivalent of the, you know, some people like carrots was the, so now can we talk about these dudes you bag it, right? It, it was the, to the extent that there have been parts of our conversations that have been absent or there have been gaps because of this, can we now fill them in ways that honor the fullness of your humanity? Um, and so, you know, I celebrate, you know, that um, the, the core relationships didn't shift um, and a lot of it has to do with the nature of our relationships, right? Um, I had this conversation with a friend recently, and one thing that was different in how our friend circles responded is that, like, I'm not inclined to go to gay bars to socialize, um, 
because that's not where I draw strength or power. And so it wasn't about like, I now have friends that I can go take to these spaces that I was inhabiting by myself and without them. It was while we are sitting, having cigars, talking politics, I also know that it is safe to name the relationships and dynamics and things that without knowing it's safe, otherwise invite members of our community to other forms of trauma and violence um, and other. Yes. Do you find anything redeeming uh, with your work when it comes to uh, sharing that language or getting that language to be learned by cisgender heterosexual men? Do I find anything redeeming about uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Or is it always like... Because... <laughs> is it always like what? Is it always like, you know, uh, put, putting a, a square in a brown pig, you know, the round square? No, I won't say that, no. In the same way that there's incredible diversity amongst Black stand-gender-loving men, um, mm-hmm. I acknowledge that there's incredible diversity amongst Black cis hetero men. Um, and for folks who I just lost, um, I'm going to go back to where I started. So I ran through LGBTQIA+, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, which is um, about uh, um, gender identity, not sexual identity or orientation. Um, uh, LGBTQ, queer, um, uh, I, intersex, um, A, asexual, uh, P, sometimes for pansexuality, and then there's a plus because there are also new terms that are being created and or used. I don't use any of them. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I wanna make people more frustrated and introduce another term, but it is because gay is a political construct that often references the needs and priorities of white gay men. When most people think about gay, they think about white gay men or they think about white gay people. Um, and some of that is by design, social construct, political construct. There's been movements created as a result of it. I use the term same gender loving, which was created by a black man because it centers love in a space where often people are thinking about sex and deviant and perversion and judgment and isolated passages in Bibles where there are entire scriptures and sermons about showing up with the least of these and leading with love. And what I know is that that's my preference. As much as I introduce people to the term and I use it when I talk, uh, I know that sometimes people, when they're telling other people about me, are like, that's the gay one, right? Mm-hmm. And there are other folks for whom that, that term might be one that they prefer, or, or maybe neither of those terms. Nice. I also know that our brothers who are cis, which is the opposite of trans, uh, cis means that the gender you were assigned at birth by a doctor because gender is assigned, um, is a gender that you, a gender identity that you um, um, uh, find comfort in and identify with and it makes you whole. Trans is the opposite of that. For cis, het, black men, uh, there's incredible diversity and I find uh, overwhelmingly that there are um, at at least three archetypes that exist in my mind. Um, One is there are groups of brothers who are so comfortable with themselves 
and understandings of their male identity, that they are fine and comfortable and welcoming of these kinds of conversations and, and intimate and meaningful relationships with Black queer men. Um, and I said intimate uh, with, with absolute no regard for sex, but intimacy in the way that's required to have a meaningful, vulnerable relationship. Oh yeah, that's my word. I forgot. That, that project has a long relationship with the word intimate, which came up in our very first DAP project interview. It's so, important. And, and often a, intimate is nowhere near conversations about DAP or Black man or masculinity, right? And it's important. Mm -hmm. It's required for meaningful relationships. I brought it up. I said there's intimacy in DAP and I got shut down. Um, shut see, down. Because you probably were talking to brothers who are at the opposite of the spectrum where I was about no, to go, no. which is that they still have a lot of work to do. Like as comfortable as I am, I didn't feel like my brothers were comfortable with that word, but they were, they are. So that was, that was refreshing for me. And then there are a lot of brothers who I think are in between and they vacillate depending on uh, when, and, when and how they are invited in. And so I'll offer as an example, Waka Flocka, who is a rapper that a lot of people are talking about this week because he has been compelled to change his previously homophobic and transphobic comments about somebody else's child because his own child is now identifying <laughs> in queer ways, mm. right? Mm. And so I wanna be clear that Charlie Rivera is a child. And what she has said is that she wants to bring a girl to her quinceanera, which when I think about prom and junior prom and how many dances my sister and her homegirls went to together, doesn't mean much. Mm. And I say this because too often adults find themselves fixated on children's genitalia and intimacy, sexual, physical intimacy amongst children when the vast majority of them who identify as queer are doing so because they're saying these binary boxes don't work, not because they're signing up for all this adult stuff. Right. But his daughter, Charlie, said, I want to bring a girl to my kinsay. And he has been, and I want to be clear about this because he's a grown ass man who could have doubled down on his ignorance and righteousness and said like, you ain't my daughter or, or you, you can't do whatever. You can't be the person who you're going to be. Mm -hmm. And that's not what he's done. He's walked back some of the things that he's previously said about Zia Wade. And as hurtful as it was to hear him say the things that he said, and as problematic as it is that he is becoming more conscious because of a personal relationship, in the same way that Jay-Z became more of a feminist because of his daughter, right? Like we have to make space. I would like for us to make space for folks, brothers in particular in this context, to be able to increase their competence and compassion. Amid the calls last year for Black Lives Matter, we also heard these increasingly louder chants that Black trans lives matter. And mm -hmm. that's for good, good reason, but it's also for tragic reason in that there were 44 violent fatalities against trans people, transgender people. So can you help us understand this particular violence against uh, transgender people that we should be aware of. Last year, we all lost Monica Roberts, the trans griot who was responsible for reporting on the murders of Black trans women in part because 
um, the murders often go unreported um, and most of them go unsolved because of dead naming, uh, misgendering, um, things that happen as a result of us not having these conversations. And thus far this year, we are uh, set to outpace that. There are three things that come to mind. One is um, calls for Black lives chronologically include calls for Black queer lives, Black trans lives, Black intersex lives, Black non-binary lives, Black dis disabled lives, all Black lives. And because words matter and there's power and precision, and in the absence of naming, there's sometimes an assumption that individuals with multiply marginalized intersectional identities don't matter. There's been an increase in naming the disproportionate violence that Black trans folk face and Black trans women and girls and femme non-binary identifying folks more generally. If I can try and unpack some of this, there is a history of gender-based violence that Black women and girls, and again, when I say women and girls, I mean cis and trans, have always experienced. And it has been exacerbated by colonial, Western, white supremacist thoughts and practices informed by the transatlantic enslaved trade. And so there are, um, in so many ways, still legally protected policies and practices that encourage the physical, social, economic, political oppression of Black folks, of women and girls, and when applying a lens of intersectionality, that Black women and girls in a particular way footnote here, which is that a lot of folks have been introduced to the term intersectionality vis-a-vis -vis the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, who was responsible for credited with introducing it to the legal academy as a part of the push to center critical race theory. And Patricia Hill Collins remind us, reminds us that intersectionality is a construct and a framework that has existed and been used by indigenous communities, women of color, black women in particular, for centuries. None of this stuff is new. And so in this moment, there is now a, uh, there are now opportunities in part because there's increased visibility, not just with the deaths, but, but, but with in the same way that black, black folks generally have continued to do it and women more generally have continued to do it and folks with disabilities are continuing to do it. There is more visibility on the, the, the space where the Venn diagram meet, meet in the middle, the, the points where there's intersections because previous attempts to suggest that solving for problems in, in the foundation of civil rights for some would benefit all continue to prove to be false. And I guess this is a really long way of saying that as long as there have been <clears throat> efforts to demand acknowledgement of and protections around our humanity and our civil rights. The people living on the front line, the people dying have been members of our community. 
I, the, the, the chat I think the two of you have posted on Instagram before this one is about um, uh, uh, Patricia, uh, isn't it? Or, or Alicia, Alicia Garza. Alicia. Mm -hmm. And it should be lost on no one that the first person to tweet the term Black Lives Matter is a Black gay man, same gender loving man named Dr. Marcus Anthony Hunter, who's a professor at UCLA. And as you all discussed in referencing her book, the of the three Black women responsible for popularizing the term connected to the movement, two of them identify as queer. The vast majority of the organizations that are part of the movement for Black lives who are doing the policy work connected to the Black Lives Matter movement, most of those organizations are led by Black, queer, trans, and non-binary folk. We're still talking about last year, June is traditionally celebrated by white folks and corporations that love them and our money as Pride Month. There would not be a pride if it were not for Marsha P. Johnson, a Black trans woman who existed at a time when trans was not the word that people used. At a time when New York City had a legal policy that allowed bar owners to discriminate against LGBTQ people because there was a working assumption that queer people don't handle their liquor well. And so people were at Stonewall because it was one of the few places where people were charging queer people more money to access the same liquor that they couldn't access in other places. And at a time when folks got tired of the police coming in there, abusing people in the way that police often do, when they're not being thoughtful in the ways that I described at the top of this, there was a Black trans woman who was like, no. And the Stonewall Rebellion was birthed. All of this to say that too often we silo the way that we remember these conversations to say that like uh, um, Dr. King in his dream like toiled for this part of our community in this way without acknowledgement that I'm gonna um, unblur this because uh, this is appropriate at this moment without regard for the fact that there would not have been a march on Washington or march in most other places without Byron Rustin, like the literal architect of, of, of so many movements around social justice, not just for black folks, but for Jewish folks and for other folks. Um, and that work is, is connected to the work of Marsh B. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who started STAR. It is, it is the reason why I accepted this very public role that at a minimum invites people to think about my sex life <laughs> uh, above and beyond my well-being. <laughs> Goodness. Aaron, talk to us about Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Three months into 2021, uh, feels like 1920 when we look at the Georgia voting laws that just got passed. And I love what, I've, what I'm seeing in the news that you and your organization are doing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you know, we definitely want to see how we can be supportive of it. Yeah, happily. Um, so for folks who missed it, uh, Georgia is continuing to lead uh, our nation in attempts to uh, demonstrate what white supremacy looks like um, in preventing uh, people from exercising uh, earned uh, constitutional and civic rights. Um, and so on Thursday evening, last Thursday evening, uh, Governor Kemp who stole the election from Stacey Abrams, for the record, 
uh, was signing a, a bill, SB202, into law in Georgia. And uh, I encourage anyone who has the time and capacity to read the legislation. Uh, I spent a decade on the Hill. It's one of those things where the devil literally is in the detail um, and a piece of punctuation can change an entire intention um, of a sentence or a policy. Um, and for those that will not, um, know that among the things that is most egregious about this legislation, um, two, one, it provides the Republicans in control of the state apparatus now to literally be in control of the voting process, structure, rules, and procedures, where they get to appoint individuals who have what is otherwise assumed to be a responsibility to the state, not to a political party. That's one. The second thing is it makes illegal things like giving water to voters who are waiting in line. And I have spent most of the weekend, uh, I, my phone is literally off the hook right now because people have been calling nonstop because they're outraged that NBJC is doing two things in this moment. One, we are asking why there is a history in the state of Georgia of arresting black women lawmakers in particular for doing their job. Representative Park Cannon is a brilliant student of Congressman John Roberts Lewis and the teachings of SNCC. Um, she has been representing the 58th District of Georgia in the way that her community continues to champion and was at her place of work doing her job when she was arrested. Right. She now has two, faces two felony charges that in the state of Georgia, based on their state constitution, can prevent her from being able to seek reelection. And then the second thing we're doing is honoring that last June, there were so many companies who tripped over themselves to stand in alignment with the movement for Black Lives, to issue statements talking about how much they care about us and our communities to prove it. And so the PGA, the association that is responsible for many of the tournaments that professional golfers play in, including the Masters, which is operated by an independent affiliate, the Augustus Masters Association, which has a board of directors, which includes Bill Gates and Condoleezza Rice. The PGA has previously issued statements talking about their desire to address the lack of diversity in the sport. There right now is a job opening for a diversity and inclusion leader for the PGA circulating right now. And what we're saying is if this is all true for you, then prove it. And we're making the same invitation to CBS, which is airing the Masters and will benefit from the advertising dollars associated with this tournament, to the players who are paying to participate in this tournament, to Coca-Cola, a company that is headquartered in Georgia, that has contributed to the political campaigns of people who are literally changing the rules to prevent people from being able to engage 
specifically. If you benefit from the code lottery and are white or live in a white zip code in Georgia, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for justice. You don't have to wait to be served at Starbucks. You don't have to wait to cast a ballot. But if you are black and poor and have a disability and maybe have a low wage job that wasn't decimated by COVID, you gotta wait for everything including this promise of democracy. Let's talk about joy. Now, I know you've watched the Lil Nas X video. I know you've watched it 50 million 1,100,000 times, so. You gotta get into my tweet caches. No, <laughs> listen, <laughs> dang it, I was all up in IGs. Yeah. Yeah. I, like to, I like to come with my own little research and receipts, but let's get into this. First, yeah. this is not the dude from Old Town Road. I asked my daddy, I said, daddy, have you seen that little Nas X video? And he said, oh, you mean the Old Town Road? And I said, mm, there is no Old Town Road going on here. So he says that, not my daddy, but Lil Nas X. He says um, it took him a lot to come out of his comfort zone. And that sounds to me just like any other artist pushing their boundaries and to come out of his, his comfort zone and to me, that sounds like any other artist trying something really new, really bold. And I bring that up to say that that is a bridge between Lil Nas X and other people. So we should feel more closely connected. His expression of that is his business, but the act of that is one that can connect us. So here's what I'm thinking about. Um, our mutual friend Tonko, Eisen Martin, said that um, cultural workers are really important in shifting opinions and pushing us to bridge gaps, to think differently about things that may seem outside of our own understanding. We can bring it, we can bring it closer. So how is Lil Nas X, in your opinion, fighting the good fight for the communities that he is a part of? Uh, uh, so I, um, if he hears this, Montero Lamar Hill, he's an extraordinary being. Um, I think that there are at least, I think in threes, no surprise, right? So there are at least three things that are happening in this moment. Um, my prayer is that Little Nods X, Montero really, um, the fact that he named the song, his government name is not lost on me, um, has around him a community of people who will continue to lift him up as the world does the work of trying to tear him down. It feels like he is inviting us into forms of relief and joy that come along with this process of blazing trails and shattering ceilings and advancing the baton that Sylvester and Lil Richard and Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B and so many others have contributed to. Uh, and my prayer is that he cognitively, socially, and emotionally as well. He is the living embodiment of Black boy joy. 
And for me, I use that hashtag a lot, often as a reminder to myself that I'm entitled to it. And because the more I find complete comfort in all parts of who God purposed for me to be, the more I know that the thing that people hate, that they have a visceral response to, is watching me exist as a free Negro <laughs> who is unencumbered Damn and right. unrestrained by all the baggage that, that comes with the conditioning and socialization that they lie and tell you is going to make you feel comfortable. Yeah. What I celebrate is that the, the same genius that I, I, um, I, when Old Town Row was at the, at, at the, at the precipice, um, I was in the White House. There is not an elementary school that I went to where that song was not played on the PA. Right. Where it was not played on the PA. And the genius of being Absolute able to, to leverage technology and the gift of song making to create something that invited in children and then families such that all of them are now having to contest with <laughs> now being invited into the, 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 the garden of Adam and Adam is fucking genius. On a pole, you are, in, you are invited on a pole. You are invited in what looks like- Hey, I told you, I like, but and, and I like the Bridgerton but, dress. But, and, and, oh my God! The, all of it with the the layers with the with the gel on gel on gel. He had sweetie or illicit. So and here, here and then like connections, right? So one, I have a colleague Victoria Kirby York who posted this thoughtful analysis about all of the biblical references. And, and 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 the troll of trolls is that like everybody's up in arms like oh that child don't know God. It's like when I laugh thinking like I'm the grandson of a Baptist preacher. Before we close, David, tell us what song you keep in rotation. When you're not listening to Lil Nas X. <laughs> tried and true, tried and true. What's your tried uh, and true song that you keep in rotation? Oh, that's funny. Uh, today I have been playing uh, Leela James on repeat in part because I just watched her unsung um, and she sings about falling in love in ways that I dream about. But if there's a song that is like my go-to and one that I think about applying in different contexts, it's um, Donnie Hathaway, Young, Gifted, and Black. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I've asked between Donnie and Nina, um, mm -hmm. but I play Donnie more often than uh, Nina, and Donnie also sings um, um, a song for you. I was going to say Make Me Whole, but that's a Nola Rue. Um, but yeah, Donnie Hathaway is my favorite singer of all time. Those are my two favorite songs, um, and then Nola LaRue is in second. I think you got to be in a mood to need that to need the um, Nina Simone version of "To Be Young, Gifted, and Black." It's, a, it's waiting. That it in your face. Yeah. She's like, it is waiting. Yeah. It is waiting. Yeah. My favorite thing to do when I was my favorite thing to do when I was in the White House was to require people to play "Young, Gifted, and Black" uh, before I would speak or do anything. And the number of black teachers, black adults who had never heard of the song was mm. I don't I don't know that I I don't know that I found the word to describe that feeling. Mm. Um, but to know that it exists and to know that so many of us have 
not found it and found ourselves in it mm -hmm. um, doesn't sit well with me. Mm -hmm. yeah. On that note, David, um, you have poured a lot into us, into the DAP project, and it is immensely appreciated. And um, we look forward to future conversations. Yeah, I look forward to on, on and offline, on and offline. We're going to actually cross paths and, and give each other depth at some point in life after this. Yeah, uh, I look forward to it. <laughs> Absolutely. We delivered everything that our listeners need and everything that we needed. So I'm so gratified that no we had this great <laughs> conversation and that folks are really going to be, they're, they're going to find them their, their souls on a different plane after listening to this chatty chat that we had tonight. So be well. We will be praying for your efforts in Georgia and all of the demons that you're going to slay, slay them all. along along the way. And next time I hear to be young, gifted, and Black, I will definitely be thinking of you and your future plus one in your very happily yes. situation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's going to be plus one and a half because I got a fur baby now. Okay, so you're plus one and a half. <laughs> That's right. Who has to be okay with being part yeah, of it. Yeah, we're packing deal at this That's point. right. All right. <laughs> deal. Good night. We'll All right. Thank you. This was fun. Have a good night. All right. Take care, brother. How soon do you think we can have David Johns back on the podcast? Because I love every ounce of that Black man and what he said, and we learned so much from our talk. David definitely dropped several gems throughout our talk. I'm hoping we can get him to come back soon. His take on the world is one that I'm very glad to share with our audience. Continuing to learn, TDP still be reading. We had a great talk about Alicia Garza's The Purpose of Power. You can watch the talk on our IG page. And our April selection is... The Marathon Continues, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. Lock in with us, give it a read, and join us on April 25th at 5 p.m. on IG Live for our monthly book talk and discussion. As we said to David, this conversation may be one of the most important we've done yet, we have to be aware that queer communities experience emotional and physical violence and that we can be a part of creating the world they deserve. Visit nbjc.org for the toolkits, policy positions, and other advocacy resources to advance justice and love. Personally, I'm going to continue to scrub my language for phrases and terminology that I may have grown up with and did not know were offensive, but now that I know better and have these resources, I am absolutely going to do better. On the socials, you can find me on IG at Rhonda Henderson. And for all things books, at Ruby Reads Chocolate City. On Twitter, I am at educate underscore Rhonda, but I don't really tweet that much. I retweet a lot, but I don't really tweet that much. Find the DAP Project on Twitter at DAP underscore project and follow us on IG at the.dap.project. I'm always around on IG as well, trying to make it do what it do at Aaron.Stallworth. Thanks for rocking with us for this hour of the DAP Project. Join us again soon for our next episode and check out our previous episodes again or for the first time on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Visit our website at thedapproject.com to see everything that we have been up to.
Resistance is a highway with many lanes, and we hope that you find yours. Take care, folks.